All right, guys. So I got Walker Reynolds for a second here, and we're answering some Discord questions from the community. So Walker. Um, all right. So over the this is today's December twenty eighth, and over the course of the month, of, you know, December is a crazy month. So over the course of the month of December, there's a bunch of questions that have come in specifically about the unified namespace. And rather than uh, this is through Discord and through our YouTube channel, um, so I decided to answer the questions in a video. So to state a tradition. Um, Unified namespace questions answered take zero. Uh, all right, so you know before I get started, let's let's talk about what the unified namespace is, and and and, and if you you're you need um, some help understanding what a unified namespace is, uh, you can point at one of these links somewhere that I'm sure Zach will put, which will take you to a couple of different videos that we've shot that get into the weeds about the unified namespace. But I'm gonna answer some questions that have come through on Discord. Very, very common questions. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and answer them once or once, maybe twice, and hopefully that helps for the whole community. So let's talk about what the unified namespace is. So to answer the question about what the unified namespace is, the first thing that we gotta do is remember what our goal is. And our goal is, is the holy grail. So as industry 4.0, the fourth industrial revolution is all about turning the data we created, the data we started collecting, or the data that's available um, through automation um, into information. The difference between data is that data is raw. It has a rising event, it has a falling event, and it has a value, okay, over a period of time. It's got a timestamp, it's got a value, it's got a name, and that's it. That's what data is. Information is something you can act on. So what we do is we take data, we either apply context or we create context from that data. So context would be, I may have a tag called temperature one, you know, temp one inside the PLC. And all I've got is a value that's the rising event, the rising edge and the falling edge of a specific event. The context would be temp one is the upper temperature sensor on this tank that belongs to this process that has this work order running on it at this moment, okay? That's context. With that context, you can create information and information informs people and allows them to make decisions. One of those things could be, I've got a uh, context could be, I've got that temperature one, temp, it's called temp one inside the PLC. So I've got temp one inside the PLC. It's got a value, it has a rising edge, it has an increase, it has a value over time. That's the data, okay? I can apply context to that is I can grab data from other places and I can create context and information. And that data or that the additional data and that to create the context and the information could be that belongs to this tank, which would be um, tank one, part of process one. And some additional information could be we're running product code A on work order B and our recipe, our set point for that temperature transmitter is going to be 80 degrees Fahrenheit, okay? If I take all those things and I combine them together, that gives me context that can help inform an operator. That's what the fourth industrial revolution is all about. Fourth industrial revolution is about taking all that data and creating information with it, okay? And that's done in many ways. That's done in SCADA systems. It's done in manufacturing execution systems. It's done in quality systems. It's done in warehouse management systems. It's done in the ERP. It's done in your CRM. It's done in your shipping software and your AR and AP software. It's done in lots of places. It's not just the on the edge where your PLCs are, okay? 
when we talk about the convergence of IT and OT, and I hate that term and I generally don't use it, but it's one that most people are familiar with. There's really been the two iterations in, in industrial or in the fourth industrial revolution. They, the first iteration, and I'm going to go ahead and share my screen here. Um, the first, the first, uh, evolution is all the stuff is in the ERP and the cloud stuff. Okay. This is the stuff. This is the IT stuff. This is the stuff. Sometimes it's here too, but uh, we'll go ahead and make this red. Um, the, the first iteration is the stuff that IT controlled. Okay. So IT controls the ERP almost always. It closed, controls the cloud and it controls the business infrastructure. So that is when you go to work in a plant and you get on the internet, you're getting on an infrastructure that IT owns. Okay. So that is the IT information. That's the IT data for two decades, three decades the IT groups have moved to move to open architecture solutions a long time ago with the exception of ERP. ERP is generally the monolith, right? It's not generally open architecture. Okay. Um, although there are ERPs today that are, uh, are open architecture. Remember the definition of open architecture plays nice with anything in your ecosystem. The IT group has gone to gone to open architecture long time ago. They avoided what a term called vendor lock, which is basically that the vendor doesn't hold you hostage simply because you used their software to create a solution, right? IT moved to that type of open architecture without vendor lock decades ago. But operational technology, okay, that is the plant floor, the plant floor stuff, okay, has not gone to open architecture in general. Okay. This stuff, this operational technology, the stuff that's on the plant floor is generally not owned by IT. It's generally owned by operations it, and the engineering group and the electrical group generally own the network that all the equipment lives on. Now, this isn't always the case, but it's most, most of the time it's the case. And the reason why is because the rules that the information, the IT group put in place to secure data to stay compliant with Sarbanes-Oxley when it comes to your ERP data, right? Or but to stay in compliance with best practices for network uh, um, security makes it next to impossible to run your business on the plant floor. So what they do is they create a completely separate ecosystem, which is your operational technology, one that is generally outside of the purview of IT. And so the people who make the decisions about how that the networks are architected on the plant floor, what solutions you use, uh, what are the minimum technical requirements for those solutions are not IT people. They are generally engineers. They are generally automation engineers, industrial engineers, manufacturing engineers. And they kind of have their own little um, ecosystem on the plant floor that they're in control of. But there are some limit, there are some, some rules that IT puts in place that says, well, in order for you to do whatever you want, we basically have to have an air gap between your network and our network. Okay, so that was the first rule. The first rule was, well, we're just not going to let you take any of this stuff that's on the plant floor and connect it to the business network and get out to the internet. Okay, and so there's basically an air gap that the plant floor has its own network, but it's not really connected into the overall infrastructure. Now, 
the the first step was they put workstations in between these two networks or created a DMZ or you know they 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 created more and more they realized that they needed to take the information the data that's in that's in these solutions and get them to cloud-based solutions or get them to a single source of truth etc so what they did was they put little workstations in the middle or they put a DMZ in the middle and they made like explicit connections that is, you know, the MES is allowed to connect to the ERP only over port A and that's it. And it can only be, you know, a one-way connection or whatever, right? Or we we use a certificate here and a certificate here and we have this explicit connection. And, um, or we use messaging queues to kind of connect the operational technology into the business infrastructure. None of that works, okay? I've been doing this a very long time. It, it, it doesn't mean that you can't, it, it's not going to work in a small capacity, right? Um, that is for like a specific use case, it, it may work, but it's not going to work when it comes to digital transformation, industry 4.0 or the Holy Grail. Now let's remember what the Holy Grail is. Let me get over here. A Holy Grail is a fully integrated business made up of digital factories. And there are some requirements of that, okay? So what we're, what we're trying to achieve with digital transformation is we want everything and everyone to be plugged into the network. Again, many of you have heard this before, but let's don't fast forward through this. The, you need to keep this in the forefront of your mind, what your goal is here. The layers of the business are integrated and operate based on data and information from all of the other layers in real time. So that is, these are the layers of the business. Uh, a better, um, a better. this is an, another way of looking at the layers of the business. This is how manufacturing works, CRM, ERP, MES, SCADA, PLC, HMI, warehouse management, shipping, ARAP. This is everyone. Okay. This is the layers of the business. Right now, SCADA doesn't generally have any information from the CRM or the ERP. MES may have some information from the ERP. It may not. It should. They, it should seamlessly be able to retrieve information, model infor master data information from the ERP and build materials. But this, this, anybody who's been doing these types of integrations can tell you that oftentimes this connection between MES and ERP is next to impossible. It's it, you, you'll spend, you could spend a year, two years, three years just fighting with IT and the SAP development group to get all the connections that you need. And then the moment you get them, you realize you don't have everything you need and, and, and you, you'll spend another couple of years trying to fight this battle. All right. So, um, let me, let me go back to our Holy Grail. All right. So all layers of the business are integrated and they operate based on data and information from all the other layers in real time. The, every stakeholder in the business knows the state of the business in the real time. So whether I'm a, whether I'm a pulpit operator in a steel mill, um, whether I'm a pulpit operator in a steel mill, who's only, I'm only ever really interfacing between supervisory control and data acquisition. Um, they're, I'm, I'm a stakeholder in a business. I should also have the ability to view more important information about the business in terms of, you know, how, how are we doing today? You know, are, are we running efficiently? Are we profitable today? Um, is there, because if I have that information, it can, it can help drive my focus towards what I should be doing in my role in the business to help make us more profitable. At the end of the day, that's the goal, right? Increased efficiency, higher profitability. That's at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to achieve. Also stakeholders know the future state of the business in real time. So the SCADA operator, that is the guy who's sitting in a pulpit or in a control room monitoring a process. And he's tasked with 
executing, you know, making sure that process runs as optimal as it can as an operator, get my changeovers done, get my new products up and running as quickly as I can. I right now they're we're really good at understanding the state of the process that I'm managing at this very moment. Um, we're pretty good at that. We're terrible at predicting what the future state's going to be unless I make a change. Okay, so this is a this is a huge step in terms of Industry 4.0. The next step is we want to leverage technology, machine learning, and AI to collect and analyze data and information. We want to use machine learning to predict future outcomes based on past patterns and current state. We want to use artificial intelligence to consume what machine learning is able to accurately predict so it can recommend operational adjustments to improve future outcomes. And then the individuals, the stakeholders, the SCADA operator in the pulpit will choose whether or not to execute um, the recommended operational adjustments that comes from AI. That right there is, that is the definition of a fully integrated business made up of digital factories. So let's get all, let's bring it all the way back to the unified namespace then, okay? None of that's achievable without using some type of unified namespace. Unified namespace is a term that we use, but you could, you could hear, you know, digital twin. We don't use the term digital twin because a digital twin is a snapshot of the business. A unified namespace is stateful, okay? It's a single source of truth of your business that contains all the information, not just what's the state of the business right now, but also what was it previously and what do we predict it's going to be, okay? So what we do is we create a unified namespace built on ISA 95. ISA 95 is essentially the standard for structuring industrial data in software, okay? And that structure is enterprise plant area line cell. So if we want to look at that, that's here. This is, that's this structure. We create a unified namespace that's sort of put, that's a single source of truth. That's one location for all of your consumer applications to go to, to both consume the data it needs to create information and a place to publish its information back into the unified namespace for other consumers to use. All right. So that's the unified namespace. Each individual application, each PLC, each, soft, uh, each piece of software has its own custom namespace, okay? When you, and, and sometimes you call that a master data model inside of an, a unique application. So SAP has its own namespace. It has its own custom namespace for how it manages the software. But you can't take the custom namespace of SAP, the custom namespace of uh, Ignition or Factory Studio. You can't take the custom namespace that's inside of Hybyte or inside of the Canary Labs Historian or inside of Flow or inside of you know Automation Intellect's MES system. Yada yada yada. yada add ad, ad finitum. Okay, you can't take those custom namespaces and just throw them together. What you have to do is apply some technological rules, some minimum requirements, some minimum rules that makes it so that all of those pieces of software become a node in an ecosystem. And what we do is we structure, we take that custom namespace, we apply some rules to it, and then we tell it where, where to publish um, in the unified namespace so that it has its own unique place inside the unified namespace where the data is organized for other consumer applications to consume and um, create new information and publish that information back. That's what the unified namespace is, okay? So now with all that background, let's answer our questions, okay? So Jay on December 7th, this is in Discord, in the, the Industry 4.0 Discord server. Um, in the Discord server, 
um, under the unified namespace channel under industry 4.0. Um, uh, most of these questions are, are from in there, okay? The Discord is a metaphor for the unified namespace in industry, okay? So, all right, so let, let's, answer, let's go ahead and answer these questions and, and I'm just gonna kind of do it organically. So Jay on December 7th said that, you know, something that confuses me and these two are together. So, um, so Jay and JS, the, these two right here are um, part and parcel of one another, okay? So Jay said, something that confuses me is why Sparkplug B is so popular. Uh, regarding the unified namespace, it seems like a big design flaw to put all telemetry data under one D data topic per device. And I'm going to explain what he's saying here in a second. If my end application only cares about two sensors from that machine, why would I want to have the extra traffic and parse through the payloads to figure out if this message contains the data I care about? I understand it's nice since my devices can learn about new payload types automatically, but in practice, how is this helpful? Okay. So on prima facie, so on face value, what Jay is asking, when I read that question, okay, um, what jumps out at me is that Jay doesn't understand one of the minimum, one of our basic rules about digital transformation. And uh, if you've taken Digital Mastermind or you're part of our mentorship program, there you'll remember that there's a slide where I go through and it's, it's basically all the rules about digital transformation, right? Some key points. One of the key points is make no assumptions about how data will be consumed, okay? Jay's question violates that rule, okay? Because what he's saying is, is that if, as me, as me as the developer, if my application only cares about two sensors from that machine, why do I want that extra traffic? And the answer is because if what you do, when we talk about digital transformation, we're really talking about digitally transforming enterprises. How can I digitally transform my whole business? I, you know, it's very easy. We talk about this all the time. It's very easy to build a SCADA system for a single process. Okay. That is, I've got a, a batch process where I've got three tanks where I'm mixing Coca-Cola in it. Okay. It's very easy to build a SCADA system there because I have, um, I have PNIDs, which are the plumbing and instrumentation diagram. That's got all the labels for all of my, um, sensors. I've got the PLC program that's got all the tags and add-on instructions, UDTs that I need to, to handle the automation. I've got a sequence of events that some engineer wrote that's telling me, okay, here's how things are going to happen. Someone has sketched out the ISA 101 uh, wireframes for what the screen should look like. ISA 101 is the you know level three, level two, level one navigation inside of SCADA systems. Someone has created the alarm theory diagram. Someone has uh, put together a control theory diagram. Um, someone has written a functional specification. And so it's very easy to build a SCADA system for an individual process. And part of that process is we don't, we don't pull for data from that PLC that we're not going to use. Okay. I may have a hundred thousand tags inside of the PLC, but I'm only going to, in the SCADA application, I'm going to use maybe 12,000 of them. So I'm only going to pull the 12,000 I'm going to use, right? The problem is when you do that, is that if there becomes a piece of data inside of the PLC that some other application is later, will have to use later, it, that, that application, that developer is going to first start by grabbing, A, setting up a communications connection, 
and setting up a polling rate to go get only the piece of information it cares about. Okay. This is when this is where you run into your critical mass. What ends up happening in digital transformation is that as we move, as we move, uh, or we add nodes to our ecosystem, right? When I have a single PLC and I've got one SCADA system, I have a one-to-one -one relationship between the PLC and the consumers um, in the ecosystem, okay? Of, of the data that I can make available to those consumers, the, that event data, okay? The value with the tag name, when, when, what it value was, it was over at, at uh, you know, with a timestamp. There's a one-to-one -one relationship. But as we add in nodes, the implication becomes, or the, 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 the relationship between event and consumer becomes exponential. So as I say, I, well, I want the MES system is going to need some certain information or it wants to put information inside the PLC or the ERP wants to consume some of that stuff from the PLC or the, um, or the, the HMI that's just running on the line, not the SCADA system in the control room, but the HMI running on the line is going to want to pull only some certain information. What ends up happening is I create multiple connections with multiple polling rates, um, and each change is a discrete change that only impacts one of those connections, okay? Part of the reason that digital transformation fails and what we've observed through um, our process of, of working with com companies to leverage Industry 4.0 is that they approach digital transformation, they start by approaching digital transformation the way they build a SCADA system. And one of the rules in a SCADA system is make assumptions about how the data will be consumed. Why? Because we don't want to pull all the tags on our SCADA system. Why would we? If the SCADA, is if the SCADA system is only going to use 12,000 tags, why would I bring 100,000 tags into the SCADA system? It's a very valid question, and it totally applies. The reason we use a unified namespace is the unified namespace is the place where everything goes. And the SCADA system becomes a consumer of the unified namespace. And from... And the, the SCADA system can choose to only consume, that is, subscribe to the data it cares about from, the, from the, uh, the unified namespace. The unified namespace is the one single source of truth, okay? It is, it's, it, you know, if the digital twin, if you will, although we're not going to use that term. So why is Sparkplug B so popular? Um, it seems like a big design flaw to put all telemetry data under one D-data topic. The answer is you don't have to put it all under one data topic. You can have multiple spark plug B payloads for a single device if you want to. The only difference is that each of those spark plug B payloads will have their own device ID. So I could have one PLC that's got three spark plug payloads, okay? And, but each, each it would be like device ID A, device ID B, device ID C. That's how, that's how it would be constructed. It's under the client ID. So it'd be um, like a virtual PLC kind of? Correct. It would be a grouping within the PLC. So you are not limited to just one D-data topic. Here's the advantage of doing it that way. Okay. The, and here's the reason Sparkplug B, uh, why is Sparkplug B so popular? Number one, Sparkplug B is designed to map to ISA 95 by default. It doesn't have to, but you can. It's designed to follow the ISA 95 structure. Number two, it 
gives you the ability to compress the payload. Okay. So you can compress and encrypt and publish it uh, a huge payload and um, using a lot less bandwidth where the spark plug B, if the, if the broker that you are publishing to, or not the broker, but the client who is going to subscribe to that namespace wants to consume, has the ability to consume spark plug B uh, payloads. It will, it, the parsing ha happens automatically on the client side. All right. So for example, Ignition is a tool that can decipher Sparkplug B formatted payloads. So let's say, for the sake of argument, that what I want to do is I want, I want to publish everything from my PLC, that is every tag, every add-on instruction, um, you name it, every element in every array. I want to publish all of that in one, you know, over Sparkplug B. The consumer, the user of that data doesn't see it as one big, huge JSON. The consumer application does, and it parses it. And the, and the, the consumer, the developer who's working with the data has, sees it in the same form they would have seen it in the PL in, or in the Spark Plug B client that's publishing it. Okay. So I want to answer, I want to go a little bit here. So if my end application only cares about two sensors from that machine, why would I want to have the extra traffic? The answer is, is because eventually you want all the stuff in the PLC. We get, this is something we can guarantee, okay? Just because you're building an application that only uses two sensors doesn't, machine, doesn't mean that your data scientists are only going to care about those two sensors. So why force the data scientists to create their own custom connection? Why do that work over and over and over again? Because it's the same amount of work to bring two, to bring data for two sensors as it is to bring the data for 12,000 sensors, okay? Here's the other thing. Sparkplug B gives you the ability to say how frequently for this specific Sparkplug B payload, how, what's the minimum I want to send that information, all right? So uh, you can say that I never, I don't want to publish more than once every minute. Okay, and I'm going to do it report by exception. So only values that are going to change are going to be published. All right. So which which vastly diminishes the amount of um, the amount of bandwidth that you're sending over the traffic you're sending over the network. All right. So the the short answer of Jay's question is the reason why is because you can't make you cannot make assumptions about how the data will be consumed. All right. How is it helpful? It's helpful because what you're doing is creating an infrastructure for all of the other consumers in the ecosystem. And that helps with scaling your digital transformation solution. That's the answer. Well, JS responded a couple of days later. Let me read what he said. I'm not a Sparkplug B expert, but I can attest to the importance of payloads and data modeling. Vague, inconsistent payloads have been plaguing industrial automation and its end users for decades. They are a very real technical inhibitor. One of the things I want to say to Jay and JS is, just because you're using Sparkplug B as your as the the um, standard for packaging the payload before you send it to the broker, the the broker doesn't know that it's Sparkplug B. the The application that is turning the topic namespace into um, the custom namespace or the unified namespace that knows that it's Sparkplug B. Okay, so if you use like an off the shelf say you use a MQTT Explorer, which is an MQTT client, 
and you connect to a broker with it and you have it subscribed to a Sparkplug V payload, you, you'll see the namespace, you'll see the D data, but you won't be able to decipher most of it because MQTT Explorer does not speak Sparkplug B. It speaks MQTT, but it doesn't speak Sparkplug B. And Sparkplug B is how you package the payload. That's what Sparkplug B actually is. Okay. Um, if you can guarantee that your environment will never change, perhaps it's not useful. By the way, JS, this is a very good point. You can't guarantee that. So I would never even write this. I, here's the thing I you can guarantee. That. He's writing that to, to show how ludicrous it sounds. Correct. If the, the thing you can guarantee is that the environment will change. That this is the whole reason that industrial automation professionals have moved away from waterfall projects and to using agile project management. Because the reason why is because you know things are going to change. The reason you use SDLC, software development lifecycle applications, is because you know that the requirements are going to change. Why do we know that? Because these, these, um, the software is not, um, it doesn't operate in a vacuum. That software is used to provide information, and that information creates knowledge. And what we want is a function of the knowledge we possess. As our knowledge grows about our process, what we want changes. So we can guarantee the environment will change. On the other hand, it can be short-sighted. JS is exactly right. It's a missed opportunity not to organize and self-describe data sources. While it's initially more work on the first step, it's almost always pays off. I would argue it's not more work in the first step. It's, a, it's, it's marginally more work. Um, I can tell you that it doesn't increase the amount of time it takes to complete a project, even on the first step. It actually decreases the amount of time. Why? Because we never have to go back and add something we forgot to add. And that's something you always have to do in that first project. There's always some data point you forgot and that you have to go back and remap. And hopefully you didn't, it was, you know, a function of a, you know, a UDT, then an add-on instruction, you know, a, an element of a UDT that's got to pass through the AOI that's then got to pass through to the template inside the SCADA system. Um, I, argue, I would argue that it actually takes less time. Um, do you care about connection state? Do you want to assume context? Do you want to manually map or contextualize your data? Will any, any other than you need to work on this? Will they understand the whole system end to end or just parts of it? Have you ever spent time troubleshooting monolithic code without proper comments, aliasing, aliasing object-oriented principles, et cetera? But JS's answer is spot on, okay? But the one thing that he's missing here is rule number one, thou shalt not make assumptions about how the data will be consumed, okay? Uh, it's not rule number one, it's like rule three. Uh, and then Jay responds back, I agree, poor documentation is an issue that's plaguing the industry. I know many controls programmers, but none have had an education or training in software development life cycles, nay, I, um, software development life cycle, et cetera. I find it interesting that in the traditional software dev world that API documentation is considered standard or required, but in the OT dev world, that documentation is considered a nuisance. So a protocol was developed to try and skip this step. And I, I'll, and I take you all the way back to the reason that's the case is <clears throat> What's the one thing that, uh, you know, there's a running joke. You know, if you ask IT if you're allowed to do something, what is their first answer every single time, 100% of the time? Exactly. Oh. The answer is no, right? The, the answer is no. IT is in the business of saying no, okay? 
So the reason they say no, it, and there are a lot of reasons they say no. They're conditioned to say no. But um, the reason, one of the reasons they say no, uh, or one of the byproducts of saying no to any innovation or new connection or new application is they don't have to update their documentation. Okay. So they have the time to write the documentation one time. Okay. And they don't have to worry about changing it or updating or managing it, going to the software development lifecycle component. One step in SDLC is updating your your documentation. Um, operational technology, the plant floor doesn't have that luxury because what is king in operations? Production. What is king? Production. Safe, well, safety. Production is king in operations. Right. It, well, depending on which company you talk to, right? If you go to Cargill, it's safety. But if in many companies, production's king. Most companies, production's king. Let's be honest. Um, they don't have the luxury of saying no. They've got to figure out how to make it work. That's the reason that controls cabinets, when you go to a plant and you, you walk through any plant that's been around for 10 years or longer and look in their controls cabinets, it looks like spaghetti. Why? Because they have to do whatever it takes to troubleshoot an issue inside the electrical cabinet. But the priority isn't putting that cabinet back, back in the state it was in all nice and neat and, you know, meeting all the, you know, UL uh, requirements for wiring an electrical cabinet, but getting the operation back up and running is a requirement. So, so what they do is they mess up the cabinet, to fix it. And then they move to the, the next problem that got to solve because production is king, right? This is the problem with merging OT and IT together. So what, what one of the additional values of the unified namespace is IT can still operate the way they want to, if they want to, if, if IT wants to still say no, they can. And if operational technology still wants pro, uh, production to be king, they can as long as they meet the minimum technical requirements. That is, we're going to use a unified namespace. It's going to be built on, you know, in this case, unified namespace, single source of truth, built on MQTT. We're going to use report by exception, edge-driven, lightweight, open architecture technologies. As long as we meet those minimum requirements, IT can continue to operate the way they want to, and OT can continue to operate the, the way they do to, they want to, and the only place that they merge is at the unified namespace. All right, let's go to Scott Polnicki's question, which was December 22nd. So Scott asked the question, does everything that gets published into the unified namespace need to be in a JSON and follow a specific structure format? In an ideal world, does the UNS live in the cloud or on-prem or both? Okay, I'm going to answer the first question. The answer is no. Not everything that gets published into the unified namespace needs to be in JSON and follow a specific structure format. That is the JSON, Okay. The, the topic namespace does need to follow a format, okay? So, you know, and I need to know where I'm supposed to publish my stuff. So enterprise, site, area, line, cell, okay? That, that this is our, and that in, in MQTT, in MQTT speak, that would be this topic right here. Enterprise, site, area, line cell. Okay. That's, that's what the topic looks like. I want to, if I want to publish to this topic, then I'm going to have a value associated with cell. Okay. Right. And so if I say publish to this topic, the value, um, um, 
machine one, then if that's my payload and that's my topic, then what I'm going to get here is when I go look at cell.value, the value is going to be machine one. Okay. Um, but let's say that I've got underneath the cell itself, I've got a hundred tags. Okay. I've got tag one. I've got tag two. I've got tag three. Okay. But I've got a hundred. I go all the way up to a hundred. Okay. I can use a JSON to package this all together. So what I could do is instead of my payload, my topic being enterprise site area line cell, what I can do is I can use spark plug B to turn this cell into a device and I can package together in that JSON tag one is my key. And then value is whatever that value is for that payload. Tag two is the key value is the payload. I, I could structure it as a JSON. Here's the beauty of um, MQTT. I can have, th this is called flat MQTT, this style here. And the JSON style, the JSON style, which uh, I don't know what the first key is, but you know, the, the whole key, uh, key value pairs right inside the JSON. What will happen is if I publish this to the, to the broker, it's going to decipher it and put in, um, it's going to put it into the namespace in the correct structure, right? The beauty of MQTT is I can do both. I mean, there are many structures. There are many payload types. In fact, Ignition, I think, out of the box supports, if you're using the Ignition MQTT or MQTT engine, and you have Ignition connect to another broker, I think it consumes something like eight different payload structures. You know, Amazon Web Services version, Azure's, uh, Spark Plug B, Spark Plug A. Uh, then you've got MQTT 3.1.1. That's flat MQTT. You got MQTT version five. Um, it can consume all of them and turn them into tags inside of the application. Okay. So to answer your question, um, no, it doesn't. It can, and it can live right alongside of flat MQTT topics. Okay. Where you will run into a limitation is if, if this path is a spark plug B path. I can't, I don't have the ability to publish a flat topic like underneath the area tag if I wanted to. Okay. What I would have to do is consume the spark plug B and amend and append it and then publish the appended spark plug B payload back into the namespace. Okay. So I can put flat topics out here if I want to, but I can't. I can't append a spark plug B payload with a flat payload. I can't do that. Okay. In an ideal world, does the UNS live in the cloud on-prem or both? It lives everywhere. This is very important when it comes to unified namespace. The unified namespace is a couple of things. It's a single source of truth, uh, of truth for all data. Okay. Data. Notice I'm saying data. Okay. Single source of truth for all data and most information. Okay. Uh, it is structure and events. The unified namespace is structure and events. That is, what is the structure? How am I going to go find the data and information I want? And what are the individual events? Okay. Um, when a value changes, when a value changes, say the value of tag two changes, and I am not subscribed to that topic. Okay. 
uh, I can't go to that tag and look at old values. I, I would have to retrieve them from a consumer application that was monitoring the events and stored them. Or, which we do this here, we will we'll put in a thing that's a data set, history data set, you know, last 30 days underneath a tag as a topic, okay? So this has a value and then I've got a data set underneath it, okay? I, I could do that too. But remember, UNF, unified namespace is structure and events. Unified namespace is the hub, uh, hub to and uh, is the hub and consumers are the spokes of your functionality. Okay, that's what your, your unified namespace is. It's kind of like that? the frame. It's kind of like the framework of your business. Correct. Um, is there a specific lifecycle policy that should be implemented for the data published to the unified namespace? I'm not understand. I'm not sure that um, I understand. Um, the question, is there a specific life cycle policy that should be implemented for the data published to the UNS? Oh, how long should the data stay there? Um, when does it become um, stale, for example? The answer is never. We're assuming that as long as the connection, uh, UN, MQTT is stateful. So as long as the device that publishes the value of a specific payload for a specific topic is the connection is still good, then um, we, there's, we don't have things become stale. We know, we, we that assume that that's the, the current value, right? Yep. Or if you have that flag. Is there a technical document that I can read to get a better understanding of the architectural and other components and requirements? The answer is not yet. The thing that you really should read, absolutely should read, no, no doubt about it, is you should read the ISA 95 standard. I think it's part two or three, so ISA 95 part two or part three, that contains um, the basic model. So the ISA 95 model for industrial data, you wanna read that. I mean, the ISA 95 is many documents, but the one that you really care about is the model. Uh, and then you wanna read the Sparkplug B specification, which is available on, by the, from the Eclipse Foundation. I think I understand the concept of the 30,000 foot level, but I wanna read something that'll help me understand the purpose. The other thing is, you know, either digital mastermind or mentorship, if you're not already taking those, we go into all this, all of this um, information there um, so that he can talk about, articulate to technical reader, leaders why it's important. Really, our, our YouTube content explains everything, but this, these are the real, the real, the, the technical details you need to understand, that it's a single source of truth for all data and most information. All applications become, all applications and hardware become uh, um, consumers and producers of data and information to a single unified namespace, right? Um, and Scott, if you've got any other questions, just reach out, like, you know, clarify this a little bit more and I can, we'll shoot another video. If you'll notice, um, and then the last, because Scott's, uh, his name is green, you'll notice he's already in our mentorship program. All right, cool. So he, he, but he's not in Digital Mastermind? If you're in Digital Mastermind, your name is gold. It appears above. Okay. Um, all right. Mastermind, the, well, I mean, Foundation, Mastermind Foundation, which is free. Um, and I think you added it to the IoT mini course. Um, that is an important video to watch for everybody. And then Mastermind, uh, step one is really where we go into 
you know, basically everything you need to sell the concept of UNS. All right. Uh, Lake says, uh, how, can someone answer a few questions? How do you push data from a database to UNS? So bill of materials, for example. Um, all right. So the way that we generally do it is um, if you're using MySQL, you just use the Python connector um, in MySQL to, you know, you basically run a little Python script, use the Python connector, runs a little Python script to query the database, structure the, the payload. You can use um, the Paho and Python library to basically um, take data from the database and publish it. If, you're, if, if, if that's your skill and ability, if you have that, that skill set. If you don't have that skill set, then the next step up is you use either Factory Studio or Ignition to do that for you. So you take Factory Studio, you connect to your database, and then inside, you know, this is why we talk about you need to have an IIoT platform. That's what Ignition and Factory Studio are. So they are IIoT platforms. Flow Software is another one you could actually do the same thing with. Um, you could also do it with Canary Labs um, also. They, they, I, wouldn't, I probably wouldn't do that unless it was time series data for Canary. Um, and I probably wouldn't do it with Flow unless you wanted to do some type of predictive analytics before you published it. I would, for this specific case, like I want to grab a bill of materials and I want to publish that into a unified namespace, I would be using Factory Studio or Ignition, where basically they're the, the platform in the center, they're connected to the database, and then it's their job. What you do is you use that platform to query the database and then publish the data set into um, the unified namespace, which is going to be an MQTT broker um, in most cases. Since you make the unified namespace to be a single source of truth, where where does the data actually lie? It's a single source of truth for current events and structure. Okay, the data lies in the consumer applications. So, you know, you yes, you're going to have a data lake, and that data lake is going to contain probably the history of every single event. Now it may not, but but it it could. I the way that we prefer to do it is all of the process history is stored in, we use a Canary Labs historian. We prefer Canary Labs. Uh, InfluxDB is another good one that you can use that it's very, very popular now. Um, but we, we use Canary Labs just because we like their visualization and dashboarding tools um, and the pricing's right. So, um, but what we'll do is we use Canary Labs historian connected to the unified namespace. In Canary Labs, we get to configure what it is we want to historize so we can pick areas in the namespace and say, oh, I want to historize everything underneath this, or I want to historize just that individual value, or I want to historize just these three, however I want to do it. And then I store that history in the, um, in the historian, and then I can use the historian to publish a certain amount of that history back into the namespace for applications to subscribe to. So that you yes. wouldn't have to go to the, to the historian to get that, that data. Um, Canary, how do new nodes get that, historian data? Yeah, go ahead, Zach. Uh, does Canary Labs allow you to publish that data set back to the namespace for other applications consumed by default, or did you have to custom code that? N uh, no, you create a connection. I mean, it's not, it, it's not a custom um, code thing. One of the cool things about you know, um, Canary Labs is just this, you know, the same thing with... Um, OSI Pi is, you know, in OSI Pi, they call it asset frames and, and, and event frames, right? I don't know, you know, I, I hate the fact that they use the frames term. They do that because, um, 
you know, OSI Pi was written by software developers. They're not operations guys. But all the frame is, is a model. And all a model is, is a data type. Okay. So for us, we care about in the, in the automation space, we, we call things UDTs. You know, the data types are called UDTs. So um, all an asset frame is in a historian is a, it's a template, it's a model, it's a data type. That's what that, that's what an asset frame is. Canary does the same thing that OSIPI does. It gives you the ability to create assets. One of the things I really love about, I actually think Canary does a much better job of it because they use, one of the beauties of Canary Labs is that they use, they have a tool inside in their asset management tool where you can use regex to, um, you can use regex to take um, unstructured data and, and using pattern matching, you can convert it into structured data in your asset model. So you, you, in, in the underlying technology is regex. So instead of having to do discrete mapping, like I'm creating an asset frame and then I'm discreetly connecting a data point to a specific element in the asset frame, I, in Canary Labs, I can actually use regex to look for patterns in unstructured data and get data points dynamically to where I want them to go. And, that, and, and the reason they did that is because Canary was focusing on like oil and gas for these types of applications where you've got 500, 600, 700 wells that are basically the same, but the, you know, pump off controllers and all that stuff are different. The model is the same, but the technology that's automating the process is totally different. But in, so you could use regex. It's just very similar to what we did on that big oil and gas project, Zach, where we created, um, you know, we essentially had to abstract unmodeled data into, into model data. Canary gives you that ability. And Canary, uh, all you have to do is configure a connection to be able to send the history back into the namespace. That's all you got to do. There's no, you're not scripting it or anything like that. Since you make unified namespace single source of truth, where does the data actually lie? So in the broker, what you have is the structure and the last event, okay? You also have a list of all of the subscribers for certain names of the certain areas of the namespace. And by the way, if there is no subscriber of a namespace and the quality of service isn't three, that is, uh, or retain is not flagged. That is when a value was published into the namespace and you didn't say retain equals one, then, and there's no subscriber of a, of a, of a topic, then that really just goes into the ether. It gets published into the broker, but since there's no subscriber, the value doesn't go anywhere and it's not sitting in the namespace anymore. It, it, it think of it as like a one shot event, you know, um, but, but that's configurable. So if I say, if I say, um, when I publish my topic, my payload and I publish, I publish to sell and I'm publishing the value of machine one and my quality of service. So my QOS is one, uh, and retain equals zero. Okay. Yeah. It's quality services one. If I say the QOS is one and retain is zero and I have no subscribers of that value, that is, there's no client application subscribing to that topic. What's going to happen is my my node is going to publish to sell the value machine one, but because we don't want to retain it, we only published it once and there's no subscribers, if I, if 10 minutes later, I subscribe, 
to sell that value, machine one will be the, the value will be empty. There won't be anything there because I'm saying by, by not retaining the value and the quality of service being one that I, this pay, this publish is meant only for people who are subscribing to it at this moment right now. But if I say the quality of service is three and the retain and the retention is uh, one, then that means I want people who are subscribed to this payload or to this topic right now to get it. And anyone who connects later and subscribes. So MQTT gives you the ability from the, from the edge to define who, who can get that value. And now there are scenarios where I may publish that payload where if you, if you're not monitoring it at this very moment, I don't want you to get this value. There are scenarios for that. Like, for example, alarm management software. Why would you have an alarm manage? Why would an alarm want to monitor for a value that could potentially be out of range, but I didn't get it until 10 minutes later? You don't want to do that because then you could indicate an alarm that no longer exists. Okay. Um, so how do you push? Uh, and so how do new nodes get historian data from the unified namespace? Do you republish? The answer is new nodes can either get it in this, this type of format here. Here's the other, the way that we generally do it is we will, we will get the That's actually the a really structure. good question. That's a really good question. That, I, I may get it in a, let's say that I'm only interested in the last 30 days or the last 30 minutes, the last one hour. The first thing I'm going to look for is to see, is there a topic that contains the last hour worth of historical data? Okay. If it's there, I'm going to use it there. But let's say I want to look over a longer period of time. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to get the path to that historical tag from the unified namespace. And then I'm going to go directly to the historian to get to, to query the data. Right. So, and there, and there, and by the way, this is where the engineering comes in. How you do, how you solve that problem is a function of how you design the minimum technical requirements. When you're de designing the unified namespace, you're answering that question. That question comes up. Okay. How are we going to handle history? Some people may say, you know what? We're not going to do history in the unified namespace at all. The unified namespace will just be the structure and it'll just be the events and we'll retain everything. So when I connect to the unified namespace, I'll always be able to see the last published value of every single topic in the namespace. You may set that as your minimum technical requirements, but then again, you may not. I see John Sindrich just sent a question. Let's see. Um, I saw Cinder say something. Oh, from the practical, we need to. Yes, you will, John, to answer your question. Um, you will. Uh, all right, uh, Zach, um, Vaughn, you guys have any? Was was that clear? My answer is clear. Yes. Zach? Even even for me. <laughs> okay. No, I, yeah. That, what it is the clear up a lot? Yeah. What is the unified namespace? the single source of truth for all data and uh, for all data correct correct it it and but and and this i would say that the the number one answer that people need to understand it's the structure and the events of your business okay it's the structure and the events that's really what the unified namespace is 
its purpose is to be a single source of truth for all data and most of the information. Now, why do I say most information? And the answer is, if you're doing it right, every event should be going through the unified namespace. It could be going to another application at the same time and maybe not through the unified namespace. One of the things we talk about is when you're using a unified namespace, that doesn't mean you're getting rid of every point-to-point -point connection between applications, but you're getting rid of most of them. But there are going to be scenarios where you're going to integrate from one application to another application directly. Okay, There are going to be scenarios where you do that. But the rule in that case is any data you create and any information you create from that connection has got to get back to the unified namespace. What you can't do is have them have the, that discrete point-to-point -point connection be a silo. You've got to have the discipline to say, to ask the question, okay, once we create this new data point or once we create these series of data points, how are we going to get, where are we going to put that in the unified namespace and which application is going to send it there? I have a quick you got it. That, that, that's part of the rules, right? So, all right. Hopefully this, this answered um, those questions. Obviously you guys can see why I didn't type the answers. Now it took, I mean, it took us more than an hour to shoot this. And can, um, we, do a, can we do a quick update on mentorship 2021 launch, as well as the FXU and any other exciting updates? Yes. Yeah, so we've been shooting. So let's talk about mentorship for 2021. So uh, the step one guys who are the Federation, um, they are, um, they will be receiving their practicals today. The today's Monday, the 28th, they'll be getting the practicals today. Um, sorry, we, practical was done. Then we, we have wanted to apply. We did the, the assessment late where we asked for feedback on step one. I wanted to incorporate a bunch of the ideas that came in and it took a couple of weeks actually to get everything updated and get it through review. And plus we're dealing with end of year and all that stuff. So um everyone should get their practical today um they'll they'll have a couple of weeks they'll need to deliver by january 13th um the practicals um january 14th is when we start the new sessions so all the guys who've graduated from step one are going to start step two which is factory it's frameworks university which is factory studio okay um and we're shooting all that content now um because of the holidays it really messed every, we thought We'd have more done last week and we didn't get nearly as much done as I thought we would. Um, well, so we're, we're shooting all that content. Now the frameworks university will be through intellect.online. We've also purchased IIOT.university. So you'll be able to go to either domain and it gets you to the exact same place. Um, I think IIOT.university is pretty cool. Pretty awesome that we got that domain. So um, mentorship, Step two is Frameworks University, Advanced Python, Advanced SQL, all that kind of stuff. So everyone's going to be learning Factory Studio in step two. Um, so that's all the .NET stuff, wholly object-oriented, super fast. You're going to understand how you sh in step one, you've learned how to use Ignition as your IoT platform. In step two, you're learning, how you're learning more advanced principles and you're learning how to use Factory Studio as your IoT platform. Um, our second group of mentees, so we, the, the who they're going to be called the Vulcans, um, the step two group, so they will be starting step one on January 14th. So on January 14th, we will have the new group step one people who will go through the same training that the first group went through. 
and the and the guys that graduate from the first group will start step two. Now there are some people who, for one reason or another, either didn't finish step one, they are gonna they're gonna move to the second group and do step one again. So the added advantage for the new mentees who are doing step one is a we're gonna we get to incorporate all the feedback that we got in the first step from the first group. And you'll also have the added advantage of having people who have gone through step one already, but may not have completed all the training or they didn't, you know, you cannot move on to step two until you pass step one. And it's, it's pretty rigorous. So if you, if you pass step one, it's an achievement. It's not like the rest of, you know, the industrial automation training you've gone through where no matter how terrible you are, you get a certificate. If you, if you don't understand these principles, if you cannot, if you cannot functionally do this stuff, you will not pass. You're not going to get a certificate. Um, you know, you, there are no participation awards here. Um, and, and we're doing that because the community wants that. I mean, the engineers want that. They don't want, they want to know that this is an accomplishment to pass. So, uh, so if you're in the next group, you'll have the added advantage of having people who already went through it. Um, so I, I think it's going to have a, a really positive impact on people who might struggle otherwise. Um, what was the other question or was that it? Oh, frameworks university. I already said that one. I did that first frameworks university is, uh, will, will launch on January 14th. Um, we're shooting all the content. Um, so it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's essentially an, an online rigorous training course that's going to teach you how to use factory studio as your IOT platform. And I talked with nine dot one. I talked with Dave and Tolgar at uh, Tatsoft, and they are on board yep. with the mentees. You guys are going to get access to FXU first. So anyone in our mentorship program, you guys are going to get access to it first, a few days before we do the public launch for everyone in the world to join FXU. Perfect. Awesome. Um, all right. You know, people probably got distracted, but there's a lot of really good content in there and you know hopefully it's valuable.